righteousness in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The works of the law following the rules isn't what makes us righteous, but instead it is through the law that we become conscious of our sin. As Gene reminded us last week, it can be helpful for us in today's age to think of sin as a kind of brokenness, a brokenness of our relationships with God, with one another, with creation. But just in case you think that what Paul is saying is that the law, the Torah, is no longer good for anything but pointing out sin, he actually doesn't stop there. Paul didn't have these breaks in his letter that we have. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say more things that the law does. In verse 21, he says this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So there's a few words here. Righteousness, which means to live rightly, to do right by others, doing right, being what is right. That's what righteousness is. It isn't this kind of pious sense of of purity. It's actually doing right, living rightly in community, in relationship. Righteousness of God, the right-livingness of God has been revealed apart from the works of the law, yet the law and the prophets give witness to, they give testimony to, they testify to God's righteousness. For those of you unfamiliar, the law and the prophets here, Paul is expanding beyond the law. The law, again, is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. And he includes the prophets, which in their Bibles is the second section. In our Bibles, the prophets are scattered later in the Old Testament. But in the Jewish, Old Te- in the Jewish Hebrew Bible, uh, it, it goes the law and then the prophets. So by saying law and prophets, he's saying that essentially that the, the, all of the Jewish scriptures and the traditions and all of the interpretations that have gone on through the years... On the- Sorry, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was like something came out of my throat for a second there, but it was, it was somewhere else. Um, all the Jewish scriptures and traditions are pointing and giving witness to the righteousness of God. And so it's important, and that's why it's part of our Bible still. It isn't this just thing, old thing we throw away now, but it continues to point us to the righteousness of God. And what does the next verse tell us about the righteousness of God, the doing the right thingness of God? Verse 22 tells us, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, this is an interesting verse because the original language of ancient Greek can be translated in different ways. The translation into English that we have in our Pew Bibles, the New International Version, which, so if anyone, you hear someone say NIV, that's what they mean, New International Version. It says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But the original Greek here, I think, is important to acknowledge. It's closer to something along the lines of the righteousness of God through faith, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Through faith, Jesus Christ into all believing ones, or perhaps towards all believing ones. 
So one thing to note here is that the word faith and believe are actually the same root word, just one is a noun and one is a verb. So it could be said that Paul uses this quite a number of times. It's like if I said, do you like wrestling puppies? What would you picture if I say, do you like wrestling puppies? Do you picture yourself wrestling with puppies? As in, do you like to wrestle with puppies? Or do you picture, your, picture puppies dressed up in wrestling outfits? <laughs> right? And the question is actually, do you like puppies who are wrestling? Which is it? If I ask you, do you like wrestling puppies, am I asking you whether you like to wrestle with puppies or do you like puppies who are wrestling? Well, the English, it doesn't tell you, right? The correct answer, of course, to both with anyone who has a heart is yes. <laughs> yes, I like wrestling puppies. But which of these is the correct understanding of the question is disputable. And we can't talk to Paul to ask him exactly what he meant. Where it says faith Jesus Christ, the assumption for a long time has been that it means faith in Jesus Christ. And the emphasis here is on the individual person's faith that is the means through which righteousness is manifest. However, over the last 50 years, and this comes from learning more about first century Judaism and quite frankly breaking off of some of our, the anti-Semitism which is deeply embedded in a lot of our Christian history, many have come to believe that the most likely case is that Paul meant faith of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in our Pew Bibles and the NIV, there's a little marker, there's a little letter there, which is to, to tell you, look at the bottom, and at the bottom it says, oh, actually, it could be translated this other way. Our, our Bibles, we don't know, and so all the English translators have to decide, okay, which one are we going to go with? But a good translation will tell you there's also this other option, and so they put it in there. To me, this interpretation actually makes greater sense of why the one of why the word faith is part of the sentence twice. To say the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus to all of us who have faith, that's putting a lot of emphasis on our faith, which the whole point of what Paul is talking about is to give a contrary message, that it isn't about what we do, but it is about what Jesus does. So why would we overemphasize our faith twice in the middle of this? But if we see it as the faith of Christ, that Paul's talking about the faith or the faithfulness of Christ, faith meaning to believe or to put trust in, this whole run-on sentence, chapters, verse 21 to 26, is actually just one sentence in Paul. It's one really long sentence. So we have to see this whole thing is kind of one idea. If we see this as the faith of Christ, it now becomes a picture that God, how God shows God's faithfulness to God's promises. And God's faithfulness to God's promises is made manifest through Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus' trust in God to give himself as a sacrifice made through Jesus, as a sacrifice and through the shedding of his blood. So that those who have faith in God's faithfulness as revealed in the manifest as revealed and manifest in Jesus' faithfulness, are declared righteous and just. Right? That's a lot of God's faithfulness and only a little bit of our belief. And God's faithfulness is, is as Paul tells us in verse 26. He did it 
the Christ uh, in the shedding of his blood. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. A few weeks ago, we talked about how in the New Testament, the word often translated as righteousness can be also can be translated as justice. It has the same root. And when we only think of it as the one word, we can miss that it is actually a, a, a very rich word that has a lot, contains more than what a lot of us have received as the meaning of righteousness. And a lot of uh, more contemporary translators are starting to, to, to um, try to find ways to include this justice element in the word righteousness as they translate. And so when we see the word righteousness as a word which carries both righteousness and justice, it helps us to better understand its use in the Bible. N.T. Wright is a one well-known uh, New Testament scholar he has a translation which I think helps us to see this play on the words a little bit better than the NIV does. Referring to the work of Jesus, he says, This was to demonstrate his covenant justice in the present time. That is, he himself is in the right, and he declares to be in the right anyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. And there's that expression, the faithfulness of Jesus uh, Faith, Jesus Christ, again. In Jesus, God demonstrated God's covenant justice, God's acting rightly, his faithfulness to the people that he is called. God demonstrates his covenant justice to show he is in the right in character and in action. And then he declares to be in the right everyone who trusts, who everyone who has faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. What is happening here is Paul is using what we would consider a courtroom setting. Of course, theirs look different than ours, but the comparison's close. A courtroom setting where God's people, those who trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, are brought before the judge. And the judge, in this case, is God, who is just and right. And this is where all that stuff that I talked about of God's covenant people comes into play. So remember, the Jews have always been the covenant people of God, the ones who are called by name, and everyone else is outside of that covenant. And in verse 22, Paul says, there is no difference. Now, the NIVs added Jew and Gentile here because I think that's what Paul is saying. They broke up the, sent the one long sentence, so they had to pop that in there. It's not in the Greek, but it, it, it's what Paul is talking about. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul says, all have sinned, he isn't talking about individuals. He isn't saying, Karen has sinned, Garth has sinned, Carl has sinned, Greg has sinned, you know, Jeremy has sinned. That isn't actually his, the point that he's making. As a first century Jew, Paul didn't view things in our individualism, that, that, the way that we read it. He wasn't tempted by idols of self like we are. So when Paul says all have sinned, we can actually read it as both have sinned. Both Jews and Gentiles have sinned. The all is actually meaning both of these groups together. 
All have sinned. Both Jews and Gentiles have sinned. And this would be shocking to Jews who see themselves lumped together as Gentiles, as equal sinners. No difference between them. This is shocking stuff. Though they may not have been have as hard of a time accepting that there's no difference from a perspective of their sin as the next line, which would have been really hard for them to accept. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by grace. As a side note, it's sad how often we separate these two. It's actually one phrase together, but we separate them and we focus on all have sinned, and we miss the point that this isn't about the, that the all have sinned, this is about being justified as a free gift of grace. And here it is, that courtroom scenting. Jews and Gentiles are equal. No difference between them as they stand before the judge, guilty in their sin. And God, the judge, looks at them. He sees them as having sinned and as having fallen short. And freely, as a gift of grace, out of God's very own righteous justice or just righteousness, God proclaims the verdict. You are just. That's what it is to be justified when Scripture talks about it. To be called just, to be called in the right, to be called good, to be called upright, even though they aren't. God is calling them good and upright. The Jews and Gentiles alike are proclaimed just. They are justified equally, not by works. And as Paul says in verses 29 and 30, God is not the God of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who is just and will justify everyone through the same faith, the faithfulness of Jesus. So it's no wonder that the Jews are confused because the Gentiles are now justified alongside with them, seen as completely equal. And it's no wonder that Paul's response to this grace is to say, well, then where's boasting? Not only is this done not by works of the law, but it's not even the work of your personal faith. It's by the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Jesus that what little faith we have finds us as God's people. And in that, we are declared as just by the justice of God. And this is again comes back to the covenant people of God. God made a covenant with Israel to always be their God, to be faithful to them. And God's faithfulness has never wavered. God has done what is right by the Jews. But as we saw a few weeks ago in Romans 1, 16 to 17, God's unwavering faithfulness to the Jews requires that God actually bring in everyone. That the Gentiles too become the covenant people of God. For God to be a God of God-like justice, of righteousness and grace, his people never could have been limited for all time to one ethnicity, to one people group, to one cultural set of traditions. Instead, the only limit of faith is the faithfulness of Jesus as it manifests and reveals the faithfulness of God and how we find our faith in that faithfulness. And to me, this calls forth two responses. The first is, let's get off our high horses. That's an expression which which means if you see yourself as higher uh, than someone else. In this faith, there's no room for boasting. 
There's no room for us to be saying who is in, who is out, to be claiming that we have the ability to decide who's truly in the family of God based on our own interpretations and our own prejudices, to be using slogans like Bible-believing or spirit-filled as weapons of division and self-exaltation. Instead, let's celebrate God's inclusion of all who have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus and to seek to find unity, not division, equality, not hierarchy of faith, to share our stories of believing in the Bible, to share our stories of being spirit-filled, but not as division, but for unity and celebration. Secondly, when we speak about justification by faith, too often it's been relegated to just an academic theological, sitting in Bible studies, talking about, oh, I'm justified. I'm justified by faith, not works. It's not a pious intellectual in, uh, exercise. We're content to sit and say, I'm justified by faith, not works, as we sit idly by while injustice storms through our neighbor's homes. Elsa Tamez is a Latin American theologian, and he has a book on justification by faith. And he writes, if we accept that sin has, has to do with social reality, and hopefully we do, right? Sin has social reality. It affects our relationships. It affects our society. It affects everything that we see in the world and we do in the world that happens to us. If we accept that sin has to do with social reality, justification also has to be understood with the same horizon, he says. If we truly believe we have been justified, declared as righteous by God, the grace of that verdict should cause us to get up out of our seats, to be transformed into doers of justice by the Spirit of God. I mean, we want to call ourselves Bible-believing? As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture, if it is truly God-breathed, which we believe, it will train us for what? It will train us for righteousness. It will train us for living rightly, acting justly as the family of God, living out faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, who demonstrated the righteousness and justice of God through the shedding of blood as a sacrifice so that the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, could be brought into the covenantal family of the always faithful God. If we really believe in the Bible... If we really believe that what we have is not earned by our works, but by the faith in the faithfulness of a faithful God, we can't just sit around talking about it. If our faith doesn't look like justice, then we don't really believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. This is the gift of faith, is that it is fully a gift. It isn't based on anything that we can do except that we receive the gift and that we put our faith in the faithfulness of one who went to the cross, who shed his blood for us as a manifestation and a revealing of the faithful love of God. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you that you have drawn us into this covenant. That those of us here, uh, perhaps some of us, 
I hear, uh, do you have, have Jewish ancestry? And most of us don't. And yet we are all equally drawn into this story that you started as you called out the Israelites through Abraham. That you proved your faithfulness over and over again. And in this great act of faithfulness through Jesus on the cross, you opened that. You continued that covenantal love and faithfulness to include all people. God, we need your help. It's so easy for us to try to judge who is true, who is right. And we do it on these shallow things. Give us your heart. Help us to see your movement, to see your spirit moving in all people, bringing forth faith in Jesus' faithfulness. We choose to accept this gift of faith and ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in it. Amen. I would invite you to stand with us as we respond through uh, singing. Thank you. 
So during this last song, as we continue to respond, um, we will, uh, we're going to uh, receive our offering. Um, this is an act of worship for us here, an act of part of giving ourselves back to God. Um, so uh, there are ways to give online, if you'd like to give that way. Um, there is also a box in the back behind you there, if you want to give physically. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we hope you feel no obligation to give um, your presence here with us today is uh, is uh, is good enough.
So, as you go this week, go with confidence, trusting in God's unfailing love and faithfulness. God will not abandon you. You are his hands and feet, his own creation, and his love endures forever. So go enjoy to love and serve the Lord. Amen.